Um, do we have the text, our text tonight, John 12? Would y'all, let's do like we used to do back in Baptist and Assembly of God days and stand for the Bible. Come on, let's stand and let's read this together. All right, let's read all of the verses together. There's uh, 14, so this is going to be a little bit. All right, let's read. Now among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. Where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. Now my soul is troubled, and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said that it was thunder. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate the kind of death that he was to die. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. You grab a seat here. This is an incredible text that uh, hails from the Passion Week. This is the week when Jesus came. Next week we'll focus on the triumphal entry. Jesus came to Jerusalem. The political climate was hot. He had been holding out in um, the Transjordan region. And he had even been told by his disciples, Lee, that if he went to Jerusalem he would be killed. Uh, but in spite of that, he persisted and he went to Jerusalem anyway. First, the Bible says in John 11, he came to Bethany, which was about six miles from Jerusalem, and he healed his friend Lazarus, raised him from the dead. You remember that. And then John 12 opens on the Monday evening, this Monday, maybe Sunday evening before the Passover, with Jesus at a dinner at a man's house named Simon. And... Lazarus is there, the disciples are there, and that's the story where Mary takes the pound of ointment of spikenard and bathes the feet of Jesus with it, and Judas rebukes her. Uh, shortly after that, you have the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We'll look at that next week. And then you come to this text, a very interesting text. Um, historians tell us, and I think I said this last week, at the time, the week of Passover, generally Jerusalem would be glutted with upwards to a half million people people from around the Mediterranean Rim, even over into the Fertile Crescent, people from North Africa came, and these were Jews who were of the diaspora, uh, diaspora being the dispersion of Jews throughout the world. They would come for this holy week called Passover. And verse 20 of our text that we just read said that there, as they were going up to worship at the festival, were some Greeks. Now, this is probably Greek-speaking Jews, um, Hellenist Jews and Jesus evidently was famous enough that these Jews from 
somewhere in the Mediterranean world came to Philip, who himself was a Greek-speaking Jew. Uh, they evidently knew him, and they said to him, we want to meet this Jesus guy. Philip went and told his brother, Andrew, that there was a group of people wanting to meet Jesus. Philip and Andrew then, in coordination with one another, went to Jesus, and they made this famous statement uh, that there were men there that were wanting, who had said, sirs, we would see Jesus. Jesus' response was a very interesting response. Jesus looked at them when they said, there's a group of guys wanting to meet you. They've heard about you. Jesus looked at them and said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now just take a pause there. Half a million people are in Jerusalem. Jesus is this miracle-working guy that uh, has a famed reputation. His disciples come to him and say, a group is wanting a sitting with you. They're wanting your autograph. They're wanting to meet you. They're wanting to meet this Jesus guy. Jesus says, well, that makes sense to me because the hour has come for me to be glorified. Interesting. That sounds like Jesus is saying to them, the curtain's going up, and this is my time, which is exactly, Jeff, what the disciples wanted. They were ready for him to play his politics and drop Rome to its knees. And so with great satisfaction, the disciples heard him say, this is my hour, because if it was his hour, then it was their hour. These were the same guys who had asked Jesus who was going to be the greatest when he came into the kingdom. These were the fellows who were asking to be secretary of state and vice president and be on his cabinet. And so when Jesus looked at them and said, yep, this is the hour for me to be glorified, they thought they knew exactly what he was talking about, and they were gratified for sure. And then he shocked them as he often did. Verse 34, Jesus, after saying, it is my hour to be glorified, confused them by explaining, very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat fall into the earth and die, it abides alone. But if it will die, it will bear much fruit. Those who love their life Interestingly, Jesus said we'll end up losing it, but those who hate their life, this is Hebrew hyperbole for loving less, those who hate their life, um, they will actually keep their life in an eternal sense, not an infinite sense. Eternal is different than infinite. The idea of eternal in Scripture is not the idea of unending, everlasting. It's a transcending of time. It's a quality more than a quantity. Those who love their life will lose it. Those who hate their life will keep it. And whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. And whoever serves me, the Father will honor. And they swallowed hard because they had already rebuked him and instructed him that he shouldn't go to Jerusalem. Their Concerns were mitigated uh, earlier because when he did finally get to Jerusalem, the crowd came out thronging him in the triumphal entry, throwing their clothes on the path of his donkey and waving palm branches. And now groups of people are wanting to see him, and he's talking about glorification. But before they could be too satisfied, he explains glorification. Somehow, his glorification 
is connected to dying. This is the season of Lent. This is a march toward the cross. This is reflection on the Paschal cycle, the process of life and death and burial and resurrection. Jesus said, those of you who are following me, wherever I am, you're going to be there too. And as they swallowed hard and tried to digest this invitation to death, Jesus explained, this isn't easy for me either. Verse 27, now my soul is troubled. He wasn't waltzing up to the cross with no sweat on his brow. Jesus said, this is a hard pill for me to swallow. And a few days later, he would actually claw the ground at Gethsemane, embedding the soil of that olive press under his fingernails as he cried, sweating great drops of blood. Father, if there be any way for me to... If there be any other way for me to do this than this, please let this cup pass from me. The Bible said there in Gethsemane, after sitting his disciples down, he went a little farther into the olive press and being in agony, he fell on his face, Roy, and he said, this is not, this is not the way I would choose it happen. I was thinking about that earlier this week and I was thinking about the words of Martin Luther King Jr. on the eve of his death um, let's see his death was it April 3rd April 4th 1968 I was seven days old he was in Memphis Tennessee and he was heartbroken because civil rights uh, were not going the way he intended them to go his life was not turning out the way he wanted it to turn out but there he was in Memphis standing up for marginalized sanitation workers and he gathered a group of people together and this is what he said. It really doesn't matter what happens now. Some have begun to talk about the threats that are out there. A lot of people are talking about what's going to happen to me from some of our sick white brothers. I will be honest with you tonight, like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And the next day, a shot rang out, and there on the second floor of the Lorraine Motel, he lay in a pool of blood, and he died, uh, 39 years old. It's striking to me that this incredible figure tells the crowd, longevity has its place, and I don't want to die. And yet, somewhere there was an intuition, there was a premonition that death was coming and King committed himself even to the cross of death for the very thing that he had lived for. You see, you really, you really only live for things that you would be willing to die for. In the sense of eternal life, life that has meaning, life that goes beneath the scratched surface. The underscoring of King's life and his commitment was seen in his commitment even to the point of death. 
This is what Paul meant in Philippians 3 when Paul said, Oh, that I might know him in the power of his resurrection. Well, who doesn't want to know him there? And then there's this pause. Oh, that I might know him in the power of his resurrection. And then Paul backs up understanding the prerequisite. And in the fellowship of his suffering, being made conformable even unto his death. There is no crown, King said, without a cross. And this is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 said the good news is that Christ lived and that he died and he was buried and he was resurrected. Now I get the resurrected part, but Paul included in the good news the death. And for some odd reason, perhaps right reason, we call that Friday that's coming Good Friday. And yet what is good about death? Jesus said death has its place because there are meaningless deaths, there are biological deaths, and then there are paschal deaths. And paschal deaths are those deaths that are, those deaths that are committed, deaths that are committed to by people who have lived so deeply into a conviction that to compromise that conviction would be worse than death. Jesus said, it's time for me to be glorified and this is the way it's going to happen. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it'll abide alone. But if it'll die, out of that death will come life. Those closest to King, even Coretta Scott King, I heard her say she always wondered if he would have lived, would his impact have been as great as the impact that came from his death. He was a beleaguered Man, He was a frail man. Scarcely does grace and truth fall on the shoulders of any human being like they, those two things fell on the shoulders of that young man. And, and beneath the weight of that press, that mantle, the fissures in his character were revealed and he was an imperfect prophet for sure. And people were chewing him apart. Only God knows what would have happened if he would have lived. But somehow in the death... Somehow a man that would stand up with small children and say, I want to see my kids grow up, I want to see them graduate. But if it is not meant for me to cross over and it is here that I must die, then this death will be worth it. This is what Jesus was talking about when he said that kind of death is not a meaningless death, it's a paschal death. And paschal deaths have a way of multiplying life. That's the point. So Jesus is committing himself to this. And then he looks at his disciples who earlier he had said or asked the question, can you drink the cup that I drink and can you be baptized with the baptism wherewith I'm baptized? Powerful questions. Can you bear a cross even as I bear a cross? Jesus said, it's not easy and my soul is troubled. And what should I say about this troubling of soul? This is what King was saying there in Memphis. What do, I, what do I do with this? Do I run? Do I retreat? Do I nullify my life by saying, alas, as the plastic chips and monopoly money turn into everything I own in this world, I don't think I believe this nearly as much as I thought I did. Now my soul is troubled, and what should I say? Jesus asked the rhetorical question. He said, what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? Is that what I should say? 
Indeed, a few nights later, for three hours, he clawed that ground at Gethsemane and he said, please save me from this hour until finally he broke and he whispered, nevertheless, not my will but thine. Now my soul is troubled and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, that's not what I should say. And King knew it too. But it's for this reason that I have come to this hour. Incredibly, as much as I enjoyed walking on water and raising people from the dead, as much as I loved the thronging crowds, as much as I loved sermons on the mount and teaching on the seashore, as much as I have loved everything that I've lived, the reality is this hour is why I came. Christian Church has asked the question for 2,000 years, why has Jesus died? Um, I do not believe that Jesus had to die to satisfy the wrath of God because I don't feel like there's a wrath of God that needs satisfied. I don't feel like Jesus is the good cop in a Trinitarian bad cop, good cop situation. But in the absence of scapegoat, blood atonement theory, I, it, has never, it has never been lost on me that this death did indeed have a purpose, an incredible purpose, and even a purpose that I'm satisfied to call an atoning purpose. Jesus' death meant something. And the question begs, what did it mean? King's death meant something. Gandhi's death meant something. My grandparents' death meant something. But what does a death mean? A death only means, a death only means the underscoring of whatever the life was lived. That's all. A death is an exclamation point and an underscoring to the life that was lived. That's why the saddest funerals to me are the funerals that there's so little to say and so few tears to shed if but the tears of regret for all the things that didn't happen or the life that wasn't lived. The depth of the valley is measured by the height of the mountain and grief is existential testimony to the worth of what has been lost and the more richly and fully and deeply a life is lived. When that life is lost, then there is a gap left, and the outline of that gap, as vacuous as it might seem, in that vacuum there is eternal life there. The life that is now absent, Jesus said, in that outlined vacuous absence, somehow Jesus said there is this invisible, mysterious, eternal life that is more powerful and multiplies actually the life that had been. Except a grain of wheat falls to the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, if it creates the gap, somehow in that gap there is a multiplication of that life. There is an underscoring. My soul is troubled. What should I say? I want to get out of this. No, this is why I came to this hour. Few of us will ever have opportunity to die for a cause in a physical sense. And yet Richard Rohr has taught so beautifully over the last several years that this text means so much as we begin to explore what it means to die in other ways than biological cessation. The death of ego. Uh, the, the death of lesser angels of our nature. Um, death to those things that stand in the way of our actualization and the Christ formation in our life.
It's interesting. I said, you know, not many of us um, are going to, in this life, die for a cause. I've met few people who've experienced that kind of martyrdom. I remember um, in 1988, I met a man named Tekla Marion and his wife, Erknish, Ethiopian ministers who our church had brought to the United States for a respite just after their baby had been killed. Um, in Ethiopia, Erknish and Tekla Marion were a profoundly impactful couple. And shortly after they had had a baby, they had been told by the militia police in their province that they would have to shut their church down, to which they did not. And one day, as they were having service, the militia came in, took their 11-month-old baby, and threw it out of the window to its death. I remember thinking that was a fairy tale, Jeff. I remember thinking I, I couldn't even in this world identify with that kind of sacrifice or martyrdom. And yet, Monday night, here at Grace Point, along with Unity, we're having active shooter training with the police. Because it wasn't too long ago that a sick person walked in a little church, Christ Church, on the other side of town, right, Roy? And shot the place up. It hasn't, it hasn't been less than a half dozen times that over the last three years since the inclusion statement that I've received emails I had somebody send an email a year ago telling me that I should commit suicide because it would give me a better chance of making it. And if I didn't commit suicide, they had a good mind to come and do it for me because it would be my best chance of going to heaven. And I remember thinking, hmm, there actually is, there actually is the possibility that that could happen. People like us, Jason, you've been in this ministry a long time before we were. There is a mark on the chest of churches like this. I remember thinking after one of those emails that came to me threateningly, I remember thinking, you know, I think I'm going to have my kids stay home from church. But in the grand scheme of things, the chance of that is slim, and I'm not trying to be moribund. But it does give one pause to think, hmm, is this, is there anything in my life, is there anything in your life that you actually think is so worth living for that it would be worth dying for? Significant enough. The reality is, I think if there's not something in your life if there's not someone, something, some cause, some principle in your life that is worth dying for, then very well, you haven't found what Jesus is describing as eternal life. Think about that. I used to think when Jesus said, whoever loses their life here, they'll gain eternal life there. It was all about heaven and it was all about this infinite life where we're floating on clouds and walking on streets of gold. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying the person who actually find something in this world deep enough to believe in, deep enough to live for, deep enough to die for, that person in the forfeiture of ego and the superficial, that person who burrows into that level of commitment, that person has already found eternal life here. They have found in their commitment to death the, the, really, the really only beautiful life. 
Jesus said, it's for this reason that I came to this hour. And then he looked up and he said, not only is it time for me to be glorified, Jesus described his glorification. He described his death as glorification. And he lifted up his voice and said, now, Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven. This is the part I really, really like, and I'll leave you with, and then we'll go eat some Irish bean soup. Jesus said, Father, glorify thy name, and a voice came from heaven. Glorification for Jesus was a commitment and a conviction so deep that it was not only worth living for, it was worth dying for. And then Jesus connects that paschal death, that paschal commitment, even to God. And he speaks to the eternal presence and says, you glorify yourself too. I would suppose the glorification for God wouldn't be different than the glorification that was being manifest in Jesus. It wouldn't be other than that. Father, glorify your name. How does God cast God's self into the ground like a grain of wheat? How does God die? How does God fall like a grain of wheat into the ground and die? Well, that's exactly what we, with a high Christology, those of us that believe God literally came in the person of Jesus, that's exactly what God was trying to show. Jesus was not that moment when God on a fact-finding mission finally found what it was like to die. Jesus was the ultimate image of God showing us what God had always been doing. God had always been entered into, pressed into, with every death, with every ounce of suffering the world has ever known, with every ounce of meaning pursuit, with every ounce of commitment and conviction that has ever been lived in the heart of a human being. Jesus was showing this is where God has always been in the glorification process, in the Paschal cycle, living and dying and breathing, brooding on the face of the deep, separating the above from beneath, going down into the grave, lifting up from the grave in hope. God has always been embedded. God was thrown out of a window in the form of an 11-month-old baby. This is why Paul calls us the body of Christ. This is why the Christian church, more and more we're learning, it is so meaningful that God came in the person of Jesus Christ, again, not on a fact-finding mission, but to underscore what has always been true. God has always been in flesh. And those six hours on that Friday afternoon was not the first moment that the central nervous system of the divine had been hooked up to the central nervous system of a human being as the nails were embedded in his hand, this wasn't the first jolt of mind-numbing pain that jolted its way through the cosmos and the spirit of God. No, God had always been in flesh. From the first Adam to the second, Jesus, this is your hour. The crowds are getting bigger. And there are some really influential people who want to meet you. And Jesus said, I don't doubt it. This is, this is my moment. This is my hour to be glorified. Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it'll die, it'll bring forth much fruit. This spake he of the manner of death that he would 
that he would endure those who lose their life for my sake will find it those who keep trying to save their life they'll lose it and whoever serves me and follows me they'll be wherever I am they'll be just like I am with the father in the cycle they will be with me and it's troubling and everything inside of me my ego dies hard everything inside of me resists this and says God save me from this hour but why would I ask to be saved from this hour? Because this really is what life is about. Why would I avoid this hour when this, this, this is the only thing that we could aptly describe as eternal life? So not only save me from this hour, Father, join me in this hour and glorify your name. And God said, I have been. As long as human beings have been bleeding and sweating and dying, I have been. Over and over and over again. The voice came from heaven and said, I've glorified it and will glorify it again. This is what I wanted to say to you that just brings the whole thing home for me. We have a lectionary group. If you ever want to be in it, we would welcome others into it from time to time. But we meet over at Lee and Carol's, a few of us, and we go over the text that I'm going to be preaching on in the coming weeks. And um, the last couple of times... My son, Stan Jr., has gone with me, and he likes reading scriptures and talking, and uh, he likes talking, and he's so different than I am, but <laughs> my granddad used to say he'll talk your leg off and ask you why you're limping, sell you a prosthetic, but um, <coughs> my son, all joking aside, he's a good kid, and he has some good insights, and he saw something in this text that I didn't see. The voice came from heaven and said, I have been. I've glorified it again and again and again. The will again. And the crowd standing there, listen to this. The crowd standing there heard it. See, the crowd standing there, Craig, had heard everything that had been said. And they even heard the voice from heaven. And they got exactly what it meant. Because the crowd standing there heard it and said, hmm, that was thunder. And a few others knew that that was ridiculous because they knew they had heard an audible voice. And a few others said, no, that wasn't thunder. But an angel just spoke to Jesus. That was totally for him. Jesus answered and said, it wasn't thunder and it wasn't for me. The Father just said that for your sake, not mine. And I missed this. Stan Jr. spoke up and he said, you know, I think in the course of your life, there should probably be a few times that God speaks to you from heaven. And you know that you've been spoken to. And if you heed the hard word, your life will be transformed and changed. But if you don't, Verlene, it'll set you back and you will have missed a moment. These are moments, these are moments that Jesus called born again moments. These are moments that some have called epiphanies. These are moments, um, I love Frederick Beekner's description of these kinds of moments. 
Beekner said, I am a four, when he wrote it, he was 43, he said, I'm a 43-year-old minister, tax-paying, professor, ordained minister. And he said, for whatever reason, I keep reaching my hand into the dark of mystery and doubt, longing for the embrace of God's hand. And to date, I have never felt that embrace. And yet, periodically, I feel the brushing of fingertips. And he said, those fingertip brushings have left me, left me knowing that I have been met, that I have encountered the divine. He said, I've never had, I've never had Milton's uh, beatific or malevolent vision of, in Paradise Lost, but from time to time, I hear whispers from the wings of the stage. And there are pivotal moments. I remember when I was 30 years old, and I won't bore you with the details, it's personal to me, but I remember when I was 30 years old, uh, actually 33 years old, I had one of those moments. I probably had five of those moments in my life that I can remember, but I had one of those moments and I resisted it. I, I could not bring my ego to the place of yielding. It was one of those moments that you felt like Jesus walked up to you and said, sell everything you got, follow me, and you just can't pull it off. You remember that story? The Bible says the kid went away sorrowful. He just, he just couldn't do it. Stan Jr. said, there are moments where the divine voice speaks to you and what it says is so not what you want to hear that you say, oh, it was just thunder. It was, that was, that was just the pizza last night. Or you pick out really profound people like Jesus and you say, you know what, that was for him. And the first 2,000 years of, of Christianity, we have found Jesus a lot easier to worship than we have found him to follow. I'll guarantee you that. We like our martyrs. We like our gods and our saviors. We like these people who are so profoundly committed that they're willing to die. Uh, you know, I was, I was just in Memphis, and I walked around the Lorraine Motel and went through the museum, and it's profound. When somebody does something like King did, we, we build memorials and monuments because it's easier to make Rosa Parks a statue than it is to live her life. And the reality is what Christianity is sitting on is a fulcrum moment for us. It's a Reformation moment. We're realizing that the first 2,000 years, we thought Jesus came to show us a God that we're supposed to worship when in reality, Jesus came to show us a Christ that we're supposed to become. And that's tough. These are conversion moments. Some said, that was, that was thunder. Others said, no, it, it, was, it was a good word, but it was for him. And Jesus looked at them, and this is Christianity. Jesus looked at them, Stephen, and said, no, it wasn't. It was for you. And when the church finally gets that the cross is for you, must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? No, there's a cross for everyone, and there's a cross for me. Oh, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and in the fellowship of his suffering, being made conformable even unto his death. There will be moments, my son said. I don't know. If, if he's had one, but abstractly, he said, there will be moments, and they're critical moments, and you miss them at your own peril. And, and you save your life, but you lose your life. And, and you're like Esau, trading 
your soul for a bowl of porridge? What would a person give in exchange for a soul? These are the questions. And again, for the first 2,000 years, we thought this was all about pie in the sky and going to hell and eternity. And yet, we're beginning to realize that eternity is now. Judgment begins at the house of God. My heart is the house of God. I'm not waiting on a by and by to stand before God. I stand before God every moment of my life. And to do something hard for the sake of conscience, this is what life is about. This is one of those moments. Frederick Beekner said, I was a young agnostic living in New York City. My first book was acclaimed. I was writing a second book. I hit a creative block. I found myself unable to write anything. I grew depressed, began contemplating other careers in advertising perhaps or working for the CIA. In my boredom, I wandered about the city on weekend mornings. And on Sunday morning particularly, I would wander about the city and there was in the path of my wandering an impressive building standing a block from my apartment on Madison Avenue. It was called Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church. It was the home of the celebrated preacher George Buttrick. In 1953, around the time of the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II, I wandered into that church uncharacteristically for me. And he said, as I wandered in and sat down, Admiring the architecture, Buckner or Buttrick was contrasting Elizabeth's coronation with the coronation of Jesus in the believer's heart. Buttrick said the coronation of Jesus in the heart of a man should take place amongst confession and tears. So far, so good, I thought. And then with his head bobbing up and down so that his glasses glittered, he said in his odd sandy voice, the voice of an old nurse, that the coronation of Jesus took place amongst confession and tears and then as God was and is my witness, he said it would happen amongst great laughter in the soul of the person. Jesus is crowned amongst confession and tears and great laughter. And at the phrase of great laughter, for reasons that I have never satisfactorily understood, the heart of an atheist melted, the Great Wall of China crumbled, and Atlantis rose up out of the sea, and on Madison Avenue at 73rd Street, tears leaped from my eyes as though I had been struck across the face. These are conversion moments when a voice from heaven speaks. And it's not thunder, and it's not for anybody else. It's not for our Messiah but it's for us. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate the kind of death he was to die. Wow. This is the heart of Lent. This is the heart of the Paschal Cycle. These texts, and this is the process of Lent, these texts make me long for Easter. These texts make me throw back my head and say, oh, that I might know him in the resurrection. Can we just, if by the end of Lent, 
you are not groaning saying, somebody please get me to an open tomb, then you haven't observed Lent. Because the only way resurrections really happen, I'll tell you who resurrections happen to, resurrections happen, eternal life happens to people who look at compromise and a grave, compromise and a cross, and for reasons deep within their soul, the cross seems less uncomfortable than the compromise. And that kind of life, a life rooted in conviction, that kind of life is a paschal life, and that kind of death is a paschal death, and that, brothers and sisters, is the best news that humanity could ever hear, that we would be willing, greater love hath no one than this, than they would lay down their life. And it's in that that life eventually comes. And Jesus said, that grain of wheat does not fall on the ground and die. That's why this is not morose. It is not morbid. It's not moribund. This, Jesus said, is ultimately where eternal life actually comes from, a life lived with conviction. Can you say amen? amen? That is the heart of the gospel. Active shooter training Monday night. Whew. So unrealistic. That most likely will never face, but the ego inside your chest, my son is right. It will, if you're not careful, cause you to miss your cross to your own peril. Listen for a voice from heaven, keep your heart open to it and live a life with conviction. Can you say amen again? Let's bow our heads and let's just meditate on this good word for a moment. Our ushers will receive our offering, but before they do that, let's just still our hearts. Except a grain of wheat fall into the earth and die, it abides alone. But if it will die, it will bear much fruit. Sweet Christ, May we hear the appeal to take up our cross and follow you and be with you. May there be things in this life that are worth cost and consequence and price. Bring us in this Lenten season to true eternal life. May the grace of God slap us across the face as Beekner experienced. May tears leap from our soul. May we be born again, 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 and again, and again, and again. We celebrate this. Root these things in our heart. We pray in Christ's name. God's people said, amen. amen. Uh, I wanted to say Jason Turner, one of our board members, sent out, asked to send out a letter this week. The response has been beautiful. We have not made a push for finances uh, in months and months and months. Um, you've been responding, and I encourage you to continue to respond. It's been heartening, uh, to say the least, and I'm sure it will be a good report next Sunday. But God bless you, those that are also, who haven't given, but are going to give. Um, Incredibly grateful. This is a good work we've got going on here. God bless you while you give.